Welcome to the infamous podcast, Bitch, I'm Not Well. I'm Kelly. And I'm Brandy. And we're invested on taking you down to crazy town, where we talk about crazy bitches who are truly unwell. Last week, we discussed Diane Downs and her psychotic behaviors and falling in love with a married man who decided that he loved his wife and he wanted to stay with her and told Diane he had zero interest in having any kids, never wanted any kids. So after Diane had visited a friend's house, she and the kids went sightseeing at 10 p.m. The children were sleeping, but she went down an old road so they could sightsee. And a shaggy-haired stranger pulled her over and demanded her car. When she refused, he shot all three of her children and shot her in the arm. She rushed them to the hospital, and this is where we're going to pick it up. Diane and her father went with the police from the hospital back to the area where the incident happened so the police would know where to begin their investigation and go through the incident step by step. Diane was making jokes, laughing, and even joking about one of the detectives named Dick Tracy. Yes, there was a detective on her case, Dick Tracy. That's pretty cool. But she was very glib about the entire incident. Okay, and she knows for sure one of her kids is already dead or two of them. I don't think she knows anything at this point. Oh, okay. But still, you're laughing and joking. I wouldn't have even wanted to leave the hospital. Yeah. They went back to the hospital, and Diane was told by Dr. Stephen Wilhite, the surgeon who treated the children, that two of the children were barely clinging to life. Christy suffered a severe stroke from immense blood loss, and Danny was paralyzed from the waist down from a bullet wound to his spine. Oh, my gosh. And how old was he? Three. (sighs) Poor baby. And Cheryl had passed away. He noticed how little Diane seemed affected by the death of one of her children and the possibility of losing the other two. I want to play a little bit of that, too. Just like the hospital workers, the detectives couldn't help but notice Diane's seemingly detached demeanor throughout the interview. Her demeanor was flat. Not one tear, even though she knew that uh, uh, Cheryl had died. Despite the gravity of the situation and the tragic events that had unfolded, she didn't display the expected emotional response. Instead, she remained composed, not shedding a tear and even laughing at certain points. While it is true that shock and grief can manifest differently in individuals, the detective sensed that something wasn't adding up. Diane even went on to say that she prayed for their deaths to spare them from the suffering. She had taken the time to carefully wrap her left arm in a towel while she drove to the hospital. Would you do that as a mother? I wouldn't put a towel on my arm. I'd put it on them as a tourniquet, rip it apart. The hospital workers also shared some of the disturbing comments made by Diane upon her arrival at the hospital. She reportedly made remarks such as, boy, this has really spoiled my vacation, and that really ruined my new car. I got blood all over the back of it. These comments were not only bizarre, but also deeply troubling, making everyone question the credibility of her story. And then she says, I really ruined my new car. I got blood all over the back of it. (laughs) What do you think about that? She ruined her new car. And it really ruined her vacation. Yeah. I don't know what vacation she was on, but... Who says stuff like that? God, Brandy, I don't know. Yeah, stopped in the middle of a dirt road. 
with no lights because I saw a guy standing there and I thought it'd be a good idea to, you know, get out, turn the car off. (laughs) When visiting the hospital, Diane noticed that one of the nurses, Paula, was getting closer to Diane's ex-husband, Steve. In Diane's book, because she wrote a book, Best Kept Secrets, and I hate to give that book any props. (laughs) You wrote that book? She wrote Best Kept Secrets, yeah. Oh, God. I bet it's crazy. It is crazy, yeah. Um... She seems to be in a jealous rage when describing herself at Cheryl's funeral. She worded that Steve hated Cheryl and only attended her funeral to bring Paula to throw it in her face. It's always about her, isn't it? I was just about to say the same thing. Yeah, always about her. Everything ends up being about her. She continually insults Paula throughout the book, and she says that she cried her eyes out in front of God and everyone at Cheryl's funeral. But no one that attended the service, actually saw her crying. And she probably wasn't. She was probably just fixated on Paula. While Christy was recovering in the hospital, because remember she had that stroke, and all of her left side was paralyzed, she couldn't speak. Diane would visit her, and the nurses would notice Christy's heart rate would elevate and that she was clearly in distress. And Diane seemed absolutely clueless to this, always saying that, we're the four musketeers. We're going to be together. Mommy loves you. And meanwhile, the heart rate monitor is going off the charts because she's terrified. Man. Yeah. At one point, she told Christy, your mommy is no longer your mommy. The state is. And that was just to manipulate her, trying to turn her against the nurses and the police and all that. And then she wrote in her book, she wrote this in her own book, that she pointed straws at Danny, the three-year-old, mm-hmm. and said, bang, bang. What? Yeah. And, oh, my God. <laughs> this woman. Right. When it became obvious that Diane was trying to put a wedge between the children and the detectives, they finally ordered her to stay away completely. Like, she lost all parental rights. She could not see them. It was... Took them long enough. Yeah, long enough. Then we move on to the investigation. The police found 22 caliber casings at the crime scene, but no weapon. When Diane had denied owning a gun, Stephen Downs, her ex-husband, and Nick, <laughs> Nick and Nick Abaka, said that she owned a 22 Ruger pistol. Ooh, they ratted you out. Mm-hmm. Nick saw the pistol on her back seat the night she left Arizona oh, to Oregon. Yeah. Whenever he moved her. Mm-hmm. And police confirmed this with records proving that she had purchased a 22 Ruger in Arizona while she was still married to Steve. Remember, she went into the bathroom saying that she was going to kill herself oh, yeah. and she shot a hole in the floor. That's whenever she had the 22. Upon searching her house, police found unfired 22 caliber bullets that matched those found at the crime scene, but no weapon. After sending the casings from the crime scene and unfired bullets to forensics, they found that they both had identical extractor markings, which meant that the murder weapon was at one point in Diane's apartment. So extractor markings are whenever the the bullet leaves the gun one way or another. So if you fire it or if you unload the gun, they create the same markings. So those markings were identical that were found at the crime scene on the old road and at her apartment. So at her apartment, were they used casings? No, they were unfired. Okay. So she unloaded the rest of her gun. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. But they still have not found the gun. So Why would you unload the gun? If you're going to get rid of the gun, just keep the bullets knows? in it. Well, the, the, the bullets might have been there previously. Oh, okay. You know, and then maybe it was reloaded or whatever, but they, they were just at one point ejected out of the gun. Just not fired. Okay. 
Another thing while police were searching the home noted that Diane had two of Nick's pictures as well as a few pictures of herself on top of the TV, but there were no pictures at all, zero of the kids anywhere. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She also had not really settled in. She had boxes all over her house and she'd been there about a month. There was no food in the fridge. There was no food in the pantries. There was nothing there to indicate that there was a woman there with three children. You know, it was more like a single person just moving in, and uh, there was nothing to indicate that there were any kids that even lived there. Man. Other than their their bed on the floor and a few clothing items or whatever. Uh, This struck them as odd. They found Diane's journals and diaries where she had written extensively about her obsession with Nick, but there were little to no entries about her children. She had pressured him to leave his wife for her, but Nick had refused and ended the relationship. Nick later reported that Diane stalked him and threatened to kill his wife so she could have him to herself, which we heard initially. I was actually just about to ask you if the pictures of Nick were like consensual pictures or if she, they were like her poking through a bush trying to get pictures of them. I think they were of them together. So okay. at one point in time, she either must have taken their pictures together or, you know, while they were dating. And But I think Nick really liked her in, in the beginning. Until so, he figured her out. Yeah, until he figured she cuckoo my choo-choo. <laughs> Put her on the crazy train. I'm sorry for that, too. <laughs> In a journal entry on May the 11th, 1983, eight days before the shootings, Diane shifted her focus from Nick to her children as if she had an epiphany, discovering her children and describing them as fantastic, smart, and sweet. It took you that long to figure out your kids? (laughs) She referred to them as the four musketeers in her journal and expressed a newfound love for them, surpassing any feelings for Nick. The investigators believed at this point she had made plans to kill them. With the kids out of the picture, she would become more appealing to Nick and would also need his emotional support to comfort her. Now the police had a motive. (laughs) Sickening. Did she... uh, It's almost like she wasn't in a reality. Like, how do you go from one day to the next, like, talking about nothing but Nick and how you don't love anybody, and then the next day, oh, I love my children. They're amazing. Best thing that's ever happened to me. So... I didn't include that part, but I think that she did go back to Arizona to see Nick, just like a pop-in surprise, and he was like, what the hell are you doing here? And it's over. I said it's over. I don't want to be a dad. I'm done. You know, this is not the life that I want. Yeah. At that point, I think that's when she made up her mind, came back, and then she wrote in her journal. And on the day of the 17th, there were no more journal entries. All they had was... May 17th, 1983. And there was nothing there on the page. Like, it completely ended. That's weird. Yeah. So, four days after her children were shot, police brought Diane in to have her reenact what happened that night with her car. Oh, I bet this was interesting. Hmm. With cameras rolling, Diane first primped her hair and makeup in the car's rearview mirror before launching into her act, smiling and laughing. One point, she bumped her cast and between laughs said, it almost hurt more than when it happened. Like, here she is reenacting the most horrible day of her life, and she bumps her cast, and she's laughing and making jokes about it. I do not understand. Do they have this footage online anywhere? Yes. 
Oh. Yes, they do. I want to watch it, but I feel like I'll throw my computer it's, screen out the window. Oh, it's so hard to watch. You know, at first I watched the Fair Fawcett. It's called Small Sacrifices, and I could only find it on YouTube. It's a good movie, but it's old, okay? So keep that in mind. It's not like current technology or anything. It's like truly 80s style. I'm sure Lifetime has a version of it. <laughs> they, they might. <laughs> But after watching that, then I watched her interviews, and Farrah Fawcett did an amazing job, first of all. But it was almost like watching another Lifetime movie because she really seemed unaffected by it. Like, Farrah Fawcett seemed more emotional than this bitch ever did. It blew me away. Yeah, you think if she was really trying to tell this story and make people believe it, she would at least act like she's sad. Mm -hmm. But. Mm-mm. It's like she has no emotions. She just, Mm-mm. like you said earlier, she's like a robot. Yeah, it's part of her mental illness, actually. Really? So she really is. Okay. Yeah, she really is on the crazy train. I'll get into all of her diagnosis. Oh, gosh. But she's for sure psychotic, you know? Yeah. The police searched her car, and they found that the forensic evidence did not match her story. There was no blood spatter on the driver's side of the door, nor was there any gunpowder residue on the driver's side door or the interior door panel. <laughs> so where she said the gun was fired from, there is forensic yeah, evidence showing there were... was no gun fired from there. Correct, yes. <laughs> the most damaging information came from a witness, Joseph Inman. He was driving behind her the night of the shooting. He said that the car was going so slow that his speedometer would not even register a speed. After she shot them? Yes. Remember when I said, remember this at the beginning? Yeah. Uh, whenever she said her first thought was, I've got to get my kids to the hospital. He estimated her speed at five to seven miles per hour. She probably could have gone faster in reverse. Mm-hmm. The detectives believe that Diane was driving so slow waiting for the kids to die or on the brink of death where she wouldn't look so suspicious. I mean, if yeah, she drives be able to tell him three dead kids, then, you know. So Diane's explanation for this was that her arm was bleeding. So this must have been whenever she realized in order to make it to the hospital that she needed to wrap her arm with a towel to preserve her life <laughs> so that she could make it safely there to save the kids. She was shot in the forearm. I don't even think you need both arms to drive. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Her forearm. That's for right? Yes. Oh, God. That's like right behind the wrist, right under the elbow. So, like, what What do you... You don't die from a forearm no. shot. I don't even think there's any major arteries or anything right there. I don't think so. I mean, your wrist. Yeah. Uh, but that's on the under... She was shot on the top of her forearm. It was probably just a graze. <laughs> I believe it was. Mm-hmm. No. Diane. About a month after the shooting, Diane started granting interviews with the media, always making sure that she looked her best. She recounted the events of that dark May night. She kept repeating with what a terrible ordeal she had been through and how hard it had been on her. She talked a lot. And the words that she spoke most frequently were I and me. She smiled and laughed But never once did she express concern or sadness about her children. Never once did she share a tear. Most bizarrely, when one reporter asked her if she considered herself lucky for only have gotten such a minor wound, she shot back that it was her children, one of whom was dead, the other two suffering horrible injuries, who were the lucky ones because she had not been able to tie her shoes for two months. You've got to be I am kidding me. Not even I'm gonna play it because it it just doesn't even seem like that would be a real thing for 
a mother to say. Here she is. I can't wait for this. He did not take time to point the gun and shoot me, obviously, because he would have shot me the same way he did the kids. When he was swinging in the direction of the keys firing the gun, he hit my arm. Everybody says, you sure were lucky. Well, I don't feel very lucky. I couldn't tie my damn shoes for about two months. It is very painful. It is still painful. I have a steel plate on my arm. I will for a year and a half. The, the scar is going to be there forever. I'm going to remember that night for the rest of my life, whether I want to or not. Because I don't think I was scar. very lucky. Oh, my God. I think my kids were lucky. Even Dad has a shot plate in his leg. We all would have died, except what? maybe Danny. What haunts you the most about that night? What do I see most is blood coming out of Christy's mouth, because that's what I see. Um, I, I can't see Danny, and I can't see Cher. Sherry was laying on the floor in driving Next to, to the hospital. Yeah. I don't know the sounds that were made at the initial shooting because I was on the outside and all I could hear, I, I can't hear anything but gunshots. And I can, I can see things, you know, I, that's it. Driving to the hospital, I can smell blood. I can not hear Cheryl. Cheryl's not making a sound. Danny is just crying real, real soft. So, so that sound stays in my mind, and the fact that Christy's choking, and just, and then I'm yelling at her, I'm screaming at her to, to roll over on her face, because I was trying to keep her from choking on her blood, and it just didn't dawn on me that she was shot in the chest and that the blood was coming from her chest, not going down into her chest. Yeah. She smiled while she was saying that. Oh, yeah, she smiles the whole time. She's so evil. So she's saying... That while he was shooting the kids, mm-hmm. she threw the keys, and he just continues shooting and follows the keys. Like no, after he finished shooting, then she snapped into reality. Remember, the gun hit her fingers or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. Then she snapped into reality, and she was like, "I am not going to be pinned down by society. You are not stronger than me. I'm going to throw my keys and hop in the car." Okay, so yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, try again, Diane. Let's do this one more time, Diane. (laughs) So four months after the shootings, police called Diane in for further information. She changed her story up this time, admitting there was no bushy-haired stranger, but two mother-effing guys wearing ski masks that attacked her and her children, and they knew her because they talked to her by her name. This is ridiculous. Yeah, it's insane. This and is I had like never heard it before. Off the but... charts on the bitch I'm not well meter. Uh huh. So this is where she gets truly frustrated with the police. And what do you even say? I don't even know. Oh yeah, here we go. Is it all done? Next time I remember something, yeah, you can find the gun yourself because I know I didn't do it. And you can chase your little tail for the next one thousand years if that's what it takes. You don't like my help? You can get it. You're real confident in the cell phone? I know that I didn't do it. Come on, Diane. It's your turn at that. Since you guys seem to think that I should have brought Diane with me, I would get it myself. Because I know who did it. You do know who did it? Yes, I do. I damn sure do. You know him by name? Yes, I do. You saw him shoot your kid? Yep. Pretty important. And I saw him grab my arm and yank my arm out and shoot my arm and say, now try to get away with it. The tape ended with Diane storming out of the sheriff's office, unable to put up with the questions. And I'm leaving because I know who did it. Bye. You know who did it, but you're not going to say anything? 17. Yeah. So she tells them, you know, this whole other story four months later that it wasn't a bushy-haired guy. It was two guys in ski masks, and they knew her name. And 
she knows exactly who it is, but because she's pissed off at him, she's not going to bother to tell them who it is. You would think that she would have rehearsed her story and tried to make it make sense. Neither one of these makes sense. I know. I could barely understand what she was saying, so I don't know. But that's basically what it was. She was saying that you can go chase your tails for 20,000 miles. I know who did it. And the detective is like, you know who did it? And she says, yes, I do. And I'm not about to tell you. So you know who killed your kids and you're not going to tell the detectives. And you were no sense. So scared for your life, but the guys are still out there and you're not going to tell police who they are? Right. Because she lied. Liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. (laughs) While the police knew all the evidence pointed to Diane, they were waiting for Christy to regain her speech from the stroke since she would be a key witness. Christy's left side was damaged, and she was working hard to regain her ability to walk, gain function of her left side, and talk. But they wanted her to be healthy enough to be able to testify against her mother, which would mean recounting the horrific incident for such a young child. And she'd have to do that in front of her mom, Yes. Yeah. Oh, poor kid was probably scared. I know. So when Christy was finally able to speak, she unequivocally declared that her mother, Diane Downs, was the one who shot them. How horrific. Oh, my God. I wonder if she tried anything at the hospital, like, before they figured out. I don't think so. But after they left the hospital, Christy and Danny were put in with a foster care home, and it was a very loving home, I think. Oh, good. Um, And they did give Steve visitation, and Diane showed up. And she was like, oh, Christy and I are just going to go for a drive. And so she took Christy by herself and went for a drive, and they didn't return for hours. And he was supposed to return them to the foster care parents, like, after four hours. He only had four hours visitation with them. And she returned back, like, seven hours later. Oh, I wonder what she did. I don't know. But after that, Christy was, like, unwilling to talk and just kind of withdrawn. God knows what she told her. I can't believe he let her take. The little girl. I think Diane was more of a very in-your-face, I'm doing what I'm doing, and you can can just sit back and take it. Diane was finally arrested nine months after the shooting on February the 28th, 1984, and charged with one count of murder, two counts of attempted murder, and two counts of assault in the first degree. Of course, she pleaded not guilty to all charges. Diane's trial began June 17, 1984, and to everyone's surprise, she showed up pregnant. Shut up. Yes. In October of 1983, Diane seduced a young teacher she met on her postal route and became pregnant. This was intentional on her behalf. She said she felt lonely without her kids. And again, here oh, we go. God. We're going to listen to some more of this verbal diarrhea. Uh, oh, man. Mm-hmm. Ready? I don't know. <laughs> you ready? I got pregnant because I miss Christy and I miss Danny and I miss Cheryl so much. I'm never going to see Cheryl on Earth again. And I just, you can't replace children, but you can replace the effect that they give you. And they give me love, they give me satisfaction, they give me stability, they give me a reason to live and a reason to be happy. And and that's gone, they took it from me. But children are so easy to conceive. Can you 
freaking believe any of that. That's what they give me. What it's me, 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 me. It's all she thinks about. This woman. I don't even know what to say. And that picture of her that's on your computer with her smiling. <sighs> okay, so the jury was comprised of nine women and three men. Prosecutor Fred Hugie, who had been on the case since day one, argued that Diane shot her children to be free of them so that she could continue her affair with Nick, since it was clear that he didn't want any children in his life. Along with the bullet casings and the blood spatter evidence, Hughie called in witnesses Stephen Downs, Robert Nick Nickabaka, <laughs> Heather Plord, and Joseph Inman, all who testified against Diane. At one point in court, Hughie played the tape found in Diane's car from that night, hungry like the wolf, and Diane was bobbing her head and tapping her hands on the table to the beat. Wow. This did not sit well with the jurors or anyone for that matter. No. Since this was the song playing while her children were shot. And she's dancing she along to the music. bobbing her head and tapping her pencil to the beat and just like singing the, you know, like lip syncing the words. And my kids were all killed during this song. This is a song that I will never be able to listen to again. Yeah. Yeah, there should be dark memories associated with this song, not yes. happy memories that you tap along to. Yes. I witnessed a death and this woman had on a perfume and to this day I cannot smell that perfume. And I didn't even know the woman. <laughs> I cannot imagine having my kids shot in front of me and this song is playing. And she's probably like, it's still my favorite. So, Jim Jager, Diane's defense attorney, made every effort, of course, to present Diane's version of events involving the bushy-haired stranger. (laughs) (laughs) Diane took the stand, but she couldn't find an explanation for her inconsistencies in her account. She testified about the abuse from her father and Steve, which impacted her future decisions. (sighs) It's always someone else's fault. Right. Her family denies any abuse, and Diane later recanted this testimony, but I know lots of people that were raised in bad homes, and they didn't turn out this way. Yeah, they're not shooting their kids on gravel roads. Nope. Nope. Much of the case against her rested on the testimony of her nine-year-old surviving daughter, Christy. Still suffering with a speech impediment, Christy bravely took the stand and described how her mother shot all three children while parked at the side of the road and then shot herself in the arm, all while Hungry Like the Wolf was laying in the car. At this point in time, when you turn off your car and pull out the keys, everything is dead. Mm-hmm. This is the 80s. It's not like today where if I turn my car off, I can still hear music until I open my door. Yeah. So she never turned her car off and pulled the keys out. I wonder why she put that detail in her story. Because that's how she got rid of the guy. I guess she wanted to seem like she was being a safe mom by turning off the car and taking the keys out so she could get out and approach the guy. That that seems like a good mothering technique. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. All of it. It's just bullshit. So she never took her keys out. So therefore, there could not have been a bushy-haired stranger like she said initially. The car was was still running, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. Because Christy vividly remembers the song playing while she watched her mother shoot her sister, 
her brother, and then point the gun at her and shoot her. Oh, my gosh. So she was the last one shot. Yep. So she remembered the entire night. She remembered visiting Heather Plourd's form, then being in the back seat with Danny and Cheryl in the front passenger seat. She said after a few moments into the ride after leaving the Plourds, the car was pulled over to the side of the road. Her mother exited the vehicle, went to the trunk of the car, pulled something out of the trunk. Diane returned to the car, leaned across the front seat, and shot Cheryl. And after that, leaned across the back seat and shot Danny. And then her mother looked straight at her and shot her. And Christy began crying over recalling the horrible details of that night. And when Hughie asked Christy if she still loved her mother, she responded, yes. Damn. That testimony sealed Diane's fate, and she was convicted on all charges on June 17, 1984. However, Diane gave birth to a girl just days after her trial, who she named Amy Elizabeth. The state of Oregon immediately took custody of the baby. Oh, thank goodness. Right, and I want you to hear this because, just because... It gave me such satisfaction. You want to tell me some more bullshit this bitch said? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, she's full of it, right? She really is. All right, here we go. Diane gave birth to her third daughter, whom she named Amy Elizabeth. The child was immediately taken into custody by the state of Oregon, establishing that Diane could not have been more wrong in her prediction. We're going to take away this one. I don't know how they're going to do it. One of the, I, I'd like to see him try to take this baby from me and <laughs> how? Oh, that's great. I love it. That is amazing. Yeah, I know. I, that was like one of the best parts for me. It was truly spectacular. <laughs> how are you going to take the baby away I'd from me? I'd like to me? see him try. Hang on. Let me tighten up those handcuffs and I'm just going to pull her on out. Hold <laughs> <All> my beer. <laughs> On August the 28th, 1984, Judge Gregory Foote sentenced Diane to life in prison plus 50 years at the Oregon Women's Correctional Center. She was required to serve 25 years before being considered for parole. Most of Diane's sentence was to be served consecutively, and the judge made it clear that he did not intend for Diane ever to be free again. While Diane was in prison, psychiatrists diagnosed her with narcissistic histrionic and antisocial personality disorders. Her parental rights to Christy and Danny were terminated. They continued to live with the foster family for a brief period, and Fred Hughie, the prosecutor, mm-hmm. and his wife adopted them. Oh, that's awesome. Yep. After their father, Steve Downs, stepped aside from taking custody due to their emotional trauma and physical conditions. So, way to go, Steve. Way to step up, Dad. Yeah. But the end of the story is not here. On July the 11th, 1987, just three years into her sentence, Diane scaled the 18-foot-high chain-link fence. While the guards weren't looking, she used clothing to protect herself from the razor wire on top, then dropped to the ground on the other side. A motion sensor on the fence triggered an alarm, but by the time the guards arrived, Diane had disappeared. She made her way to a house only four blocks away from the prison (laughs) where Wayne Seifer, a psychiatric aide and the estranged husband of one of Diane's fellow inmates, lived. When she knocked on the door, she just said, could I stay? Seifer, hungover, said, why not? And they went upstairs to sleep. 
Eh, might as or well. Or he went upstairs to sleep. Come on in. You can have the pullout. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Seifer said that Diane introduced herself a couple of hours later, not as Diane Downs, but as a girl with no clothes on. Oh, my God. <laughs> they began having a sexual relationship while she hid out in his bedroom. <laughs> I bet his girlfriend appreciated that. Wow. Seifer says, I spent 10 days with her. I fell in love. She got a golden goo-goo. Oh, my gosh. She must. <laughs> Poison. Meanwhile, police were engaged in one of the most extensive manhunts ever conducted in the state of Oregon. The search spanned over 14 states and fielded hundreds of tips and sightings from as far as East Wisconsin. Damn. Of course, we know the tips were not. Yeah, they weren't legitimate. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they were legitimate or not, but she was only like four blocks away from the prison. So, <laughs> so you didn't see her in Indiana. Yeah, good try. Good try, though. You should always call in a tip. Yep. But it was Diane's prison cell where police found the crucial evidence. While looking through her belongings, they found a clipboard with stationery on it. Under oblique lighting, the police could see the imprints of what had been written on the previous page. And it was a map showing the prison, State Street, and Seifer's address with the words, you are here, written at the top. Shut up. Yeah, so I think her her cellmate actually gave her directions. Oh, my God. Did her cellmate not think that Diane was going to sleep with her boyfriend? Don't know. I don't know. Or that she's making her boyfriend an accomplice now? I do know in an interview that she was like, well, she hadn't been with him in like 10 years, so... That made it okay. Oh, that's fine then. Okay. Right? So she said it was all right. I thought it was okay, so we said it was okay. On August the 7th, 10 days after her escape, police raided Seifer's home and found Diane in his upstairs bedroom wearing his T-shirt and boxer shorts. (laughs) Seifer said Diane was going to grab a BB gun and just go suicide by cop, but he talked her out of it. Diane surrendered peacefully. I shouldn't have talked her out of it. Seifer pleaded guilty to hindering prosecution for harboring Diane and was sentenced to five years probation and six months in a restitution center in Salem. Man. He said he asked himself a million times why he didn't turn her in, and the only excuse he could give was that he was drunk out on heroin at the time. Oh, well, that's it? Well, of course you shouldn't be held responsible for this. Yeah. Yeah. Diane says that she escaped to find the bushy-haired stranger (laughs) since the cops weren't bothering to look for him, I guess. And she received an additional five-year sentence for the escape and was transferred to the Clinton Correctional Facility for Women in New Jersey. Diane, they don't believe you. They are never going to believe you. Not going to happen. Drop the freaking story. Drop it. Bitch. (sighs) This bitch is unwell. Oh, God, yes. In 1994, after serving 10 years, Downs was transferred to the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. While in prison, she earned an associate's degree in general studies. Wow. What are you going to do with that? (laughs) You're going to go into business by yourself. Yes. (laughs) On Diane's application for her first parole hearing on December the 9th, 2008, Diane reaffirmed her innocence. Diane reaffirmed her innocence. 
She insisted that over the years, I have told you and the rest of the world that a man shot me and my children. I have never changed my story. And that is a freaking lie yeah, right you there. Say it was two guys that you knew who they were? In a were? ski mask. And I know who they are. Blah, blah, blah. I bet she said it with a freaking smile on her face, too. She probably did. Lane <laughs> County District Attorney Douglas Har- Oh, Harkley Road. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting name. Yeah. Wrote to the parole board, Downs continues to fail to demonstrate any honest insight into her criminal behavior. Even after her convictions, she continues to fabricate new versions of events under which the crimes occurred. He also wrote that she alternatively refers to her assailants as a bushy-haired stranger. (laughs) Two men wearing ski masks are drug dealers and corrupt law enforcement officials. So now she's blaming drug dealers and law enforcement. This woman. She participated in a hearing from the Valley State Prison for Women. She was not permitted a statement, but answered questions from the parole board. After three hours of interviews and 30 minutes of deliberation, she was denied parole. I can't believe they interviewed her for that long. Jeez. I know. This woman with all the Mm -hmm. God forsaken. If anybody ever lets her out. In 2010, she was relocated to the Valley State Prison for Women in Chowchilla, California, but was transferred out when the facility was converted to an all-male institution in 2013. I bet she would have liked to stay. Oh, she would have loved it. Are you kidding? Can just pop out babies after babies. (laughs) Diane was transferred to and remains in prison at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla. I like that name, too. I do, too. Along with several other high-profile criminals. She continues to proclaim her innocence. Of course she does. Of course she does. Her parole hearings in 2010 and 2020 were both denied. And as of today, January 2024, Diana is 68 years old and still in Central California Women's Facility. This bitch is going to have her story on her headstone. (laughs) I was innocent. It was the bushy-haired guy. It was the bushy-haired guy. Here lies Diane <laughs> with the bushy-haired with man. With the bushy-haired man. She is innocent. Here's Diane. She was the bushy-haired man. Here's the aftermath. So Diane's two surviving children that were adopted by Fred and Joanne Hughie have never had contact with their mother since the incident. Danny and Christy have had a wonderful life with the Hughies and both went to college at the University of Oregon. Danny is still partially paralyzed from the bullet in his back, but he is a computer whiz and living a happy, normal life. He is married with a wife and children, and he has very much stayed out of the spotlight. He does not want to be associated with his mother or any of this. You know. I'm glad he can stay out of the spotlight and yeah. just try to have as normal a life as possible. Yep. Christy still suffers from a speech impediment, but is married and has two children, a boy and a girl. And her girl named, she named Cheryl after her sister. Oh, that's sweet. I know. I'm glad they got to live good lives after I know they got rid of the devil. Right? Yeah. So, Rebecca Babcock, this is the baby that she had right after her trial that she showed up pregnant to oh, the courthouse. Okay. okay. That they couldn't yeah. find a way to take away her baby. Yeah, they would never be able gonna to. they're never going to take her away. And gotcha. they took that baby away. Thank and they you. gave her to a good home. And she said that she basically had a Norman Rockwell kind of life. That oh, that's awesome. They would go windsurfing, fishing, hiking, skiing. She had a 
However, whenever she was 11, she tricked a longtime babysitter into revealing the name of her biological mother. And I guess that they always told her that she was adopted. And I think she had a, a sibling that was adopted as well. Oh, man. When you find out that's your mom. Yeah. So that realization that her biological mother murdered one of her her siblings and tried to kill the other two rocked her world. Oh, I guess so. She went to the library and found the book that Anne Rule had written. So Anne Rule wrote a book called Small Sacrifices, which the movie was based off of with Fair Fawcett. She said, I saw who she was and what she looked like. It wasn't a face that I wanted to see. Just the cold look in her eyes scared me. The reality set in that that's who gave birth to me. I slammed the book shut and I left. She said she never told her parents that she had learned about her biological mother. Man, that's a lot to keep to yourself. At 11. Yeah. Over the years, she learned more details about Diane. It wasn't until she was 16, however, that she saw the two-part miniseries based off the book at her boyfriend's house. She said she'd shared with him some of the details about her biological mother, and unbeknownst to her, he rented the tape. What an asshole. Well, he probably thought he was doing a good thing. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So, after after watching the film, it broke her heart. And her life went into a downward spiral, and it changed her. So after looking all that, at all this, um, and she says that she looks back, and she had already become more rebellious in school and at home and becoming more intense with, like, taking drugs and dating a number of people. She moved out of her parents' home, dropped out of school. She was living with her boyfriend or other friends. She said she wasn't nice to her parents. She was angry, hurt, and lashed out. And she realized that there was some aspect of Diane's character that she related to, like the need for attention, love, and belonging. And that was scary for her coming to this realization. And she was afraid that she was headed in the direction of becoming a monster like her biological mother. Oh, man. I mean, if you stay home, you can get the attention, love, and belonging from your parents. Right. But at that age, I guess... You don't think you can. Yeah. You you want to be on your own. You know better than your parents, right? Yeah. So, by the age of 17, Becky learned that she was pregnant with her son, Chris. She said that she loved him with everything she was, but she was so young she didn't understand what it meant to be a mother, so she gave him up for adoption. Eventually, she left her hometown for a job in Klamath Falls, Oregon. She was 21, and she was engaged. She had a good job, and this was in 2006. She had her second son. Before she gave birth, she and the baby's father broke up, and she was forced to move into a homeless shelter. Oh, man. She called her parents and placed the baby up for adoption. After her second child had been adopted, Becky said that she felt drawn to finally reach out to Diane. She said, I wanted her to be a person. I wanted to relate to her not as a mother because I already have a mother. Just as somebody that was heartbroken to give up their child, she said, I was hoping to have a connection. Mm -mm. She said the first letters of exchange between her and Diane were positive And as more letters continued to arrive, that the content grew stranger. Oh, no way. They progressively got more and more insane with conspiracy theories, people watching me my whole life. Just really scary things. She said, that's when I completely regretted messaging. She said she would send me 12 pages of how she's innocent, and this is who really did it, she thinks. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Over and over and over. Yeah. She even said that Diane accused her of being part of a conspiracy (laughs) against her and trying to harm her. Oh, 
my gosh. So she eventually asked Diane to stop contacting her. She said, I had to accept that she really does struggle mentally. She really does have something wrong with her, and it doesn't mean that I do too. Yeah, she's got a lot wrong with her. Mm -hmm. So in 2010, Becky did a media blitz and interviewing with Glamour Magazine, then ABC News, 2020, and Oprah Winfrey's talk show. Then she decided she would step out of the limelight. She said, I felt like I had, you know, put myself out there, told my story like I wanted to, and it was time to move on. Afterward, Becky said that she suffered some health issues, but took up yoga and meditation, began feeling healthier. She also changed her degree program and found passion in psychology. That's she pretty cool. Reached, yep. She reached out to her siblings, Christy and Danny, who were both adopted by the prosecutor. And she said that both told her they were not interested in talking and wanted to live their lives without the stigma of being Diane Down's children. Hmm. Becky said that Anne Rule whom she eventually met before the author passed away in 2015, had given her some details about her biological father, but not his true identity. And I think she still doesn't know, like, who her real dad is. She should do the ancestry DNA yeah, and 23andMe. You know, and maybe in today's time, she probably could. At this time, I don't think that was yeah, available. Yeah, it wasn't. But she just wanted to find him because she said that half of her came from a monster and she needed to know that the other half of her wasn't like that. Oh, gosh. Right. What if he is? What if he is? No, I don't think he was. He was a teacher and he was a good guy, I think. Oh, okay. That's who... I forgot yeah, you said yeah, yeah. that. Yeah. So, um, she said, when I was young, I worried that I would be like Diane Downs. As I grew up, I realized nature is not going to win over nurture, she said. And that's a credit to her adoptive mother and father. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Becky said that she's spoken to her son, Chris, and they do have somewhat of a relationship. She's very proud of him and what he's become as a man. And they do spend some time together. That's anyway. good. And it was, that was big of her to know that she wasn't able to raise kids so she didn't put them through any of her yes. growing up. She gave right. them to families that wanted them and could handle having a kid at that That's time. That's right. And you can just tell in the few small sentences that that she's given in interviews or whatever that she is nothing like her mother. It's not about her. It was about her kids mm-hmm. and what she was unable to give them. Hopefully their lives went yeah. that they are Tons happy better. and yeah. living living their best life. Yep. So if you were interested, you can watch Small Sacrifices on YouTube. And Fair Fawcett did an amazing job. So That's awesome. Yeah. But that's all I got. This was a really bad one. It was, that's a lot. I can't believe I've never heard of her. Oh, there's a lot if you start looking. But I guess because the case was like in the 80s. Yeah, it's older. It is older. And I do want to give a shout out to Megan in Louisiana. Who was the one that referred this case? Oh, thank you, Megan. Thank you, Megan. You know who you are, bitch. So, <laughs> yeah, so we do have to give the kudos out to Megan, mm-hmm. who brought this to our attention, and we appreciate it. Keep the suggestions coming. That's right. All right, everybody. We we'll love see you next week. Later. We appreciate you listening to our podcast. If you liked it, please give us a good rating. You can listen on your favorite podcast platform with new releases every Friday. Just search for Bitch I'm Not Well. Send us suggestions for an episode at well at gmail.com because Gmail won't let us use bitch. Bow, bow. 
or visit our website at www.bitchimnotwell.com for more podcasts and our fabulous merchandise. We'll see you next week on another podcast about another crazy bitch who is truly unwell.